I had always been scared of that moment. That moment, hospitalization had been like almost weaponized against me. And it's part of the reason why I I kept a lot of my thoughts to myself. Welcome to the Finding Balance podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian Mesa. In today's episode, we have Melissa Rivera, who's a videographer, photographer, and parkour enthusiast. She shares her journey with bipolar disorder, mania, and being hospitalized in the psychiatric ward. Beyond that, we discuss the stigma surrounding mental illness, the importance of community support, and the need for self-care and self-love in order to find healing. This conversation is both insightful and inspirational, and it offers comfort and encouragement to those facing similar challenges. Trigger warning, this episode does discuss suicide, self-harm, and other aspects of mental illness that may trigger some people. Thank you so much, Melissa, for joining me on today's episode. It was an honor and a pleasure to sit with you and to share your story. Thank you so much. Did you did you recap some of the things that you were going to talk about? Or you just I did fly? not. No, I mean I I was thinking about it a little bit, you know, um, overnight and just kind of like in general, but no, not really. Okay, it was cool. just kind of like I think we just want to have a conversation, you know. Cool. We're good. Yeah. Awesome. Well, actually, Mel, I don't even know your your last name. Is that terrible? <laughs> I didn't even ask you. That no. shows you piss poor preparation on my part. Mm-hmm. For the most part, I knew what we were going to talk about, but I yeah. was like, so please so tell me your full name. My full name is <laughs> Melissa Rivera. Um, I go by Mel because Melissa is too much. So, <laughs> um, But yeah, Melissa Rivera. Awesome, Melissa. Well, welcome. I know that you reached out to me because you have a very unique and compelling story. Um, it's just your own experience uh, in life, right? Your own mm-hmm. life experience with uh, bipolar disorder. Yes. And um, you reached out and you said, hey, how do you feel about me coming on the podcast and talking about it and i say hey as long as you're um yeah as long as if this is something that you're ready to do awesome i support it because i think the more people hear about your personal story and understand what experiences you've had the bigger impact it's going to make yeah um yeah i mean i was i was definitely nervous about it it's an idea that i've had for a while um I've done a lot of talking on like Instagram and just social media, a lot, well, not a lot of talking, a lot of writing Mm -hmm. um, about, you know, my experiences and stuff. And I've always wanted to kind of have a conversation about it um, in a more public way and never really felt ready or knew how to do it. Um, And so every year for World Bipolar Day, March 30th, I always try to put something out. um, And this year I was like, you know, maybe I want to try to do something a little bit different. Um, but I didn't, I like put off reaching out to you until kind of like the last minute. And so that's why we set it up now. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think, I think I'm ready to have like a more public conversation about it like this. And today actually marks a year to the day of the yes. first time you were hospitalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a year ago today, I had my first appointment with a new therapist. Um, the day before that and then in the days leading up, um, it was just, a lot of things have started to spiral. Um, I had been off of medication for quite a while. Uh, I was not using like the coping strategies that I had learned. I was closing myself off from loved ones, all that stuff. Um, and the night before, or not the night before, the day before, I ended up um, harming myself. Uh, and I was like, I just need to make it to tomorrow. I need to make it to my appointment with my therapist. Um, and I'm going to be honest with her because up until then, my relationship with therapy was uh, not great. Um, I've been in therapy since I was 10 years old. 
And a lot of that time, up until you're 18, you have to have your parents in the room for a lot of it, um, or they do like half and half. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned very quickly that they tell your parents everything. Um, and so I made a habit of not being honest with my therapists. And so um, I was trying to be better about it. But up until this point, I hadn't been. Um, and finally, I decided I'm going to be honest. So the first thing I told her when I um, went in for the appointment today, a year ago, was um, I harmed myself. I'm having um, suicidal thoughts. And I don't know if I will make it past today if we don't do something. Mm. Um, I had no idea what that was going to look like. Um, and she was super great, like, you know, talked me through what was going to happen. Um and she explained what a 5150 was. Um, and it was going to count as voluntary for me because I, you know, I said, like, yes, I, I will, like, if you call the ambulance, like, I will go. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they took me to the regional hospital. Yeah. Just so um, people that are listening understand, a 5150 is in California, what the equivalent of a Baker Act is here in the state of Florida. Yes. And it's basically where you are involuntary, involuntarily hospitalized. Um, if you are a threat to yourself or a threat to others. So sorry. I just no, no, that was good. Yeah, I, <laughs> I should have said that, but I, no, I didn't even. It's okay. um, but yeah, that was good. Um, so they took me by ambulance. It took a little while. Um, I was freaking out a little bit on the inside. But at the same time, I was like, okay, this is like, you know, I think this is going to be good. Um, and yeah, when we when I got there, um they took me to a different, a whole different section of the hospital that I didn't even know like existed. Um, and it was psychiatric emergency services. Um, the intake process was like, I mean, they took everything away from me. Um, they asked me if I had any um, self-inflicted wounds or anything like that, suicidal thoughts. Um, they did like a whole eval on me. Mm-hmm. Um, they made me change into these uh, very beautiful <laughs> um shirt and pants that I had, uh, non-slip socks, all those things. Um, and then it was just kind of like a waiting game. I waited for the doctor. Uh, they, you know, I was just like in, in the waiting, like in the waiting area, they had a cooking channel on. Um, and I was alone with my thoughts for a while. And that was, was what, 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 what was going through your mind at that point in time? So I, I didn't know how long I was going to be there. Um, I was kind of at the point where, um, I I don't, I didn't really know what, what to do. So I was like, this is new. I'm just going to open myself to it because uh, I had always been scared of that moment. That, that moment hospitalization had been like almost weaponized against me. Mm. And is part of the reason why I, I kept a lot of my thoughts to myself in therapy. Who had weaponized it against you? My, one of my first therapists. So she was um, saying, what, 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 "How did she weaponize it? What, what were some of the words she said?" So I was in, I was in uh, the room alone with her before my parents would come in. I was around fourteen or fifteen at this time, and I told her um, that I had been thinking about. Uh, so I first I told her that the night before I had taken a couple more like ibuprofen than I was supposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had told her that I was having these thoughts about hurting myself and she put her hands out like this and she was like, you can't tell me that. Um, 
and I got really quiet and I, and I was like, why, why can't I tell you this? And she was like, so if I tell you that I'm going to have to put you in the hospital, I don't have to tell your parents. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you don't want that. That was her, that was <laughs> so, her response. So th- therapy 101 for, I'm sure there's some <laughs> therapist listeners out there. You guys know that it's definitely not the route to take. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to scare the person. You want to invite them to tell you more about what's going on and what they're feeling versus just make the assumption that, oh, this person's going to kill themselves and we have to hospitalize you. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean. So, and I, I didn't know that. I mean, again, and this is not the first instance that that happened to me. Um, that was kind of a, it was a trend um, that I was experiencing yeah. uh, in therapy. And it definitely made me, it made me scared of, um, so another thing was she, she told me horror stories about like psych hospitals essentially. So I had this in image in my mind of like these grimy, like disgusting places with really like violent, scary people. Um, and that was what I built in my head, you know, and in my head, I, I was like, I don't like, I don't want to be there. Like, that's not why like, that's going to make me feel like worse, you know, um, and so it was just multiple instances like that with not just her, um, but with with different therapists as well that I had been to who kind of shared the same like, no, you don't you don't you don't belong in there like you don't belong in there. Um, you don't actually want to kill yourself like things like that. Like and, and it was it was very damaging um, to me because I it made me like, am I like what? what am I actually experiencing right now? Um, and it led to a cycle of I'm going to hide everything that I'm experiencing because that's the only way to one, not let my parents know what's happening. Um, keep everybody from thinking that I'm crazy, uh, and keep me out of the hospital, like the scary place. Um, that ultimately led to more self-harm, you know, uh, a cycle of like isolation um, and two suicide attempts. Uh, so, can you can you because you've used the word self harm multiple times? Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so I started to. I don't know if it, we need. I mean, I'm sure this is going to come with like some sort of yeah. Warning and dis- I don't know how disclaimer. Deep we can, no, <laughs> we I'll definitely. Go, no, I'm going to put a disclaimer out there. I want okay. you to be just as raw and real as you want to okay. be. Okay. Um, because I think it's important for people to be educated on what your experience is, because this this experience happens hundreds of thousands or millions of times. Yes. Throughout the year, to, mm-hmm. to so many people who never disclose it. Um, it, it's interesting when like when you're you're about to talk about self harm. Oftentimes, when people talk about self harm, they automatically assume suicidal. Yes, and that's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, it's just a coping mechanism to escape your reality. Mm-hmm. You're so focused on. I mean, the best way I've heard it described by a patient is, "I've been, pain has been inflicted on me all my life, and I had no control over it. And all of a sudden, I can control the pain that is happening to me, and it becomes an outlet. And it actually somehow it's self it's soothing." To experience that pain, is that something that you went through? Absolutely, that that was like verbatim. That I couldn't really explain it better. I mean, I started, um, so I experienced a very um, traumatic event when I was thirteen years old. Maybe we can get into that in a little while. Um, and that in itself led came with a lot of uh, shame 
and to cope with that and as a way to and not just with that but this is one instance but to cope with it I I turned to cutting myself um it was almost by accident the first time um it was it was kind of like I I scratched myself and I was like oh and then I I kind of started to experiment from there um and it was this instant release and like rush that I had never really experienced before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it helped. I hate, I hate to say it that way mm-hmm. um, because obviously it's, it's not really helping, yeah. but um, it helped. Yeah. And uh, that very quickly spiraled. I started to turn to self harm and cutting for any anything that I started that I was feeling out of control. That was what I went to. Um, when I first started to experience auditory hallucinations, um, and they were, you know, uh, I refer to the voices that I hear as they. Um, they would instruct me to hurt myself or to kill myself. Um, I would cut myself, and it would like calm them down Mm -hmm. essentially um and yeah that just further continued that cycle and at at a certain point i i wanted to stop and i couldn't stop it was like it was almost like um like it felt like an addiction you know it was like i my my body would crave like i would get goosebumps like chills my body would crave the the release um and I would almost dissociate when I would do it. Like I, there were times when I, I don't remember the the last um, time that it happened a, a year ago, essentially the day before today. Um, I don't remember harming myself. I don't remember what um, what led, like what what was the reason that I did it. I I remember being really hazy, and then. I kind of was like, "Oh shit!" Like, <laughs> I I did this. You Were know? you typically cutting yourself in places what that aren't visible? Yeah, like on, my, on, on my on my legs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my leg, my mm-hmm. hip. Um, yeah, it could, because it was easy to hide. Mm-hmm. And the the first time that um, somebody saw, uh, I was in a bathing suit, and it was it was like, "What the like? What are you doing? Like, why would you do this?" It was very 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 shaming you know and even even still and this is something that i've spoken about before like if you see somebody's scars and you it's it's hard to um miss them because they're they're, just they're 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 straight yeah they're just lines lines, so you know for most people you will know like those are you know this person has a history of Mm self-harm you don't point out the scars and Mm -hmm. you know start to ask questions or or poke and prod and that has been my experience as well which led to a lot of like, I'm going to wear baggy clothes. Like I'm not going to show my legs. I'm not going to be in a bathing suit in public. Um, Because even, even within my support system, like within my family, you know, um, I love them to death, you know, but there is a history in the Latino community of, you know, (laughs) mental health is not really a thing. Like, what are Um, you doing? (laughs) Yeah. So, it's uh, it was it was a lot of the first time my parents saw my scars. It was, it was a what the fuck. Yeah, it was like, very confrontational. It was one of those. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
and and yeah so it, it was it was very much like that so that was that has been my experience with self-harm has been um mainly cutting I've done a little bit of burning but um you know I, I cope with it now I'm learning more coping techniques so as you've learned coping techniques because you did describe how like oh it helped it felt good mm-hmm. right so what are some of the negative negative consequences that you've learned about self-harm even though it is soothing even though mm-hmm. you, it seems to allow you to dissociate or escape from whatever trauma that you're experiencing or the stress what are some negative consequences of it so that control that i believed i had you know harming myself was the thing that when everything else felt like it was spiraling i could control you know like how much i harmed myself mm-hmm. or you know things like that mm-hmm. um that control went out the window. There was there was no more. Um, like I'm only gonna cut myself three times, and I'm I'm gonna stop. And that I have control over that. It became, I, like there's I don't know where to stop. There is no line anymore. Um, it became. This isn't enough. Like. I, you know, I, I harmed myself today um, and now, you know, it's the next day and I'm like, where's, where, like, I need to do this again. Mm -hmm. Um, and it never really felt like a, it it didn't, it didn't even really feel like a release anymore Mm -hmm. after that. Um, it's almost like, so you're getting, because of the self-harm, there is some dopamine release mm -hmm. that is occurring. And yeah, there's a rush. There's a rush. That's there's a rush, the rush that you described. But then there's no, there's no, um, there's a word that I'm looking for and I can't think. There's no like. There's no alleviation. Relief. Yeah, there's no, there's relief. no relief. Yeah. There's a rush. But the, the relief isn't there. And all, all it leads me to want is to hurt myself more. Well, this, this translate also to when people submit to alcohol abuse or heroin use etc there is no relief it's a band-aid there's a rush there's a numbing there's a dissociation but there's it's like putting a band-aid on an ulcer yeah and the ulcer is still underneath have you ever seen an ulcer yeah (laughs) all right an ulcer becomes uh, necrotic right Mm. it the skin dies it can become black Mm -hmm. it could also become infected and you become septic and it rots away the rest of your body yeah so let me just paint that picture for whoever's listening so when we when we soothe and we cut or we drink you're literally just covering it right you're protecting it kind of but not really because underneath that there's it's still seeping into the rest of your body and destroying you slowly but surely the only way to heal an ulcer is first of all take away the band-aid and then start what we call debreeding. I'm gonna a little ASMR for you guys. <laughs> Literally, that's pretty. That's pleasing. Yeah, <laughs> like rip away at the dead skin mm-hmm. in order for healing to occur. Yep. How do you do that in terms of when you're dealing with mental illness? It's it's going back to the trauma that we haven't talked about. Yep. And it's really sifting through that because that's probably the ulcer that's underneath all of these actions that you're taking place. Mm-hmm. Uh, these actions that you're using to try to soothe whatever you're experiencing. Yeah. And, and sometimes, I mean, for a, a lot of people who don't feel ready or who are scared, that's a more painful process. Yeah. 
It's extreme. <laughs> Actually, when I, I've been at the burn unit in, in the Ryder Trauma Center, and that's exactly what they do is they debreed all these wounds and these burns. And it is excruciatingly painful. Yeah. But it's absolutely necessary for healing to take place. Absolutely. And the same is when you start diving into traumatic experiences. It is excruciatingly painful to go back and, and recount these things that you experienced firsthand, that you lived through. And it's you're reliving these experiences that you don't ever want to see again. Mm -hmm. But you have to so that your brain can kind of organize and process and put them aside. They're not going away. You're kind of just right now it's like a jumbled mess. And all you're doing is laying it out and organizing it so you could process it better and live out the rest of your life. Yeah. And that's something that I um I don't even know if I could call myself in the process of of doing it yet. Okay. Really. You know, today makes a year. Mm -hmm. I have spent I spent, you know, over a decade of my life just in 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 regards to that the trauma that I experienced. I spent over a decade of my life not addressing it, hiding it. I tried to address it two or three times, was blamed for it, and then <laughs> spent, you know, I was like, okay, I'm never talking about this again. This mm -hmm. is just going to be, you know, a thing that I hide forever. And then it it um, led to, like, the exacerbation of the, of the symptoms that I experienced already, mm -hmm. you know, and then it started to show up in my nightmares. And, and it just, you know like has spiraled and and i think part of that is because of the fear like i that was too painful for me i'm already experiencing you know voice hearing that's hard enough like hard to deal with when i'm dealing with it you know um the mood episodes that i experience like that's fucking hard to deal with yeah. when i'm experiencing it so on top of that i have to address this trauma no i've that'll, that'll come at some point yeah. you know and that did exactly what you said you know it has festered and it seeps out into other areas of my life um even to to this day because i'm i'm just now in the process of like okay maybe it's time to start to address these things actually address these things um and i did a little bit of that in the so from from um psychiatric emergency services i was transferred to a residential um um, Wait, uh, you never. So, yeah. what, what was it like? <laughs> Circling so back I, there. No, no, I, I've I've worked in a psych ward before, mm -hmm. and I I heard what you were saying. It's like yeah. you had this picture, this image of right what it was supposed to be like when mm -hmm. you entered the psychiatric ward. So, what was your experience actually like when you're in the psych ward and you're there day to day? How long were you there? Uh, I was there for two days. Okay. There before I was transferred to the residential facility, and then I was sent back, and then I was sent back to the residential so facility. What, so, what, what did you gather from the people? that you met in the psych ward? They were troubled. Mm -hmm. You know, they were going through stuff, but they weren't these, like, scary monsters that all of these therapists had um, told me were going to be there. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there was one individual who um, was experiencing mania and, you know, was um, a little upset. Um, that was it, you know. They, they helped this individual um, to calm down. Um, that was a little bit scary to watch, yeah. you know. Um, but after that, you know, this person came back out from um, like the little isolation room and had lunch, yeah. you know. And then we're, we were talking about the cooking channel. Like this person sat, you know, there were um, there's like the nurse's station. And then right in front of the nurse's station, there's like 12 there were 12 green chairs like 
bright green, neon green chairs um, in front of the like women's area. Um, and so I would, I was sitting in one and this individual sat in the other one. And, you know, while they were eating lunch, we were watching the cooking channel and then we were just talking about that. And I was like, these therapists, like, have you ever been in one? You know, like ha- did have my old therapist, like, did you ever go to a psych ward before? <laughs> because I don't know what you're seeing here. This place was clean. You know, I mean, as clean as it can be. Um, and it was still, you know, in California, um, we had the uh, um, health facilities still have the mask mandate there. Um, everybody had, well, the majority of people had their masks on. They were coming out and cleaning every hour. It was like, it was clean. You know, the floors were sparkly. I love that you just <laughs> asked, have you ever been to a psych ward? Like asking your therapist that. Yeah. Because I think the problem is that a lot of people who are coming into this field have not worked across the spectrum mm. mm-hmm. or just don't have, like, have never been in that environment to really say, oh, I know what this is like. So this yeah. person definitely can benefit from going into this type of facility, mm-hmm. even if it's just short term. Yeah, absolutely. I, I worked in the psych ward and let me tell you, I enjoyed it. It's probably been mm-hmm. one of the jobs I've enjoyed the most because they are just people. They're people like you, people like me, people like your parents, um, working individuals. Yes. Some highly intelligent and some homeless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it didn't it didn't matter to me. And during lunch, I remember I would go and sit Yes. With the patients. And I was the only nurse that was out there. And I remember my colleagues being like, why are you having lunch out there? I'm like, well, because the nurse's station is just, or the nurse's lounge is like me and two of you guys. And you guys aren't even fun to talk to. I'm going to go <laughs> hang out with them. Yeah. Uh, and watching somebody have a manic episode, I mean, it's not always scary. Yeah. I had a patient who co- came up to me and was like, you need to discharge me right now. And I was like, why? What's going on? He's like, Tom Brady is downstairs. <laughs> With eight Victoria's Secret models, and you're holding me back. I was like, "Bro, can I go?" <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, there was an there was somebody there too who was like, "Oh yeah, I'm like a famous DJ," and I was just kind of like, "Okay, cool." <laughs> like, yeah, it's it's, you know, it, it's like, interesting. Right? Yeah, it was it was super interesting, and it, it was again it it blew my like all those those scary thoughts that I had in the hospital. It's like, no, that's not what this is. That's not what this is at all. These people, like some some of these people here are are like they need help. This is a place for them to be. You know, you get sick, like really sick, you go to the hospital, you get the help that you need. You know, I, I had brain surgery a month after brain surgery. Um, I had meningitis. I got really, really sick. They took me in, I got meningitis, they had to transfer me to ICU. I was treated, I lived, I'm here, you know. Like Okay, so I have this this episode that I'm going through now. I have these thoughts that are really scary. So wait, did the meningitis happen prior to you having any psychotic symptoms, or was this? No, no, it, it was it was sep- um. I, so the first time that I experienced um any psychosis was when I was 12 years old. Um, and we can get into that in, yeah, in a moment too. Okay. But yeah, I was I was 12 years old. Um, no, the, the, the meningitis happened. I had brain surgery to remove a pituitary tumor. Um, and then I went out for the first time, uh, like outside without a mask, you know, cause I had to have that on cause of the, the, the risk of infection. I went out without a mask two hours after getting home, I had a fever. And then my ex and, um, our friend found me passed out on the couch. Mm -hmm. 
and took me to the took me to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Sorry, That's Mike. <laughs> um, but the 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 point is like, yeah, if you if you're experiencing um, these things, that that's what the hospital is there for. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I had all these, and a lot of people have the belief, like, you know, you shouldn't have to go to the hospital for these problems, but what is it there for otherwise? Yeah. Like that, I, that saved, going there saved my life. They put me on the medications that I needed to be on, you know, and then from there, when I was transferred to the residential facility, I spent, I was supposed to spend two weeks there, and they extended my stay for a month. Because I was having trouble, um, you know, adjusting to the medication. Um, I was still experiencing, you know, a lot of the things that I was that put me in there in the first place. Um, and it really helped to stabilize me. And in the time that I was there, I learned a whole bunch of different coping techniques. You know, I literally spent every single day with a therapist. Shout out Stephen, because literally he's great. He still emails me to this day. That's awesome. Um and uh, he was my clinician there. And yeah, no, I, it's com- completely changed the way that I view hospitalization for mental illness. Like, and, and I think that uh, so many people need that as well. Um, in, in order to like, like not be afraid of, of that. Because it's scary. Of course. Like it was it was scary telling my therapist the truth. It was scary when she I broke down. Like I mean, hyperventilating, crying when she when she told me. I knew it was gonna happen. Mm-hmm. I knew it. I knew that that what I was gonna tell her was gonna lead to this. Mm-hmm. And even still when she told me what was gonna happen, it it terrified me. And then it was so anticlimactic. Like, <laughs> like this. It, it was just, you know, the, it, was, it, it was the same thing. I had, a, when I was there, like a nurse came out and sat with me, you know, during, during lunch. He saw I was still, you know, I was crying. It was scary. I was waiting to talk to the doctor. I, I didn't know how long I was going to be there. I couldn't um, be in contact with Daryl. They took my phone. It was, it was scary. Can I and, ask you this? Because this yeah. is something that's, uh, I, I'm not, this was in California, right? Yes. When when you were discharged from the hospital itself, you mm-hmm. went to residential treatment. Mm-hmm. But was there ever any follow up from, like, had you been, dis- have you ever been discharged from the hospital straight home? Um, uh, Like for physical illness, yes. Oh, no, no. No, no. So, so from the hospital itself, um, they checked in on me at the residential facility because I knew I was there. Um, but the hospital itself, after I was discharged from residential, no, no, actually, yes, they did because, Uh, so because I'm, so I'm technically on, um, uh, I'm on mm Medi-Cal, so that's like the government insurance there. Um, and so, uh, the county's behavioral health, um, like center is what sets up all of my appointments. And so after I was discharged from the hospital to residential, then the county, contacted them, asked how I was doing. They're the ones who decided to um, extend my stay. And then after that, I could not be discharged from Hope House, which is where I was, the residential facility. Um, I could not be discharged from there without having a follow-up appointment with my psychiatrist within nine days. I think it was it was either like yeah, nine seven, days. Or, seven, nine days. Yeah. Um, and then I had like mandatory appointments essentially after that. The reason I ask you that is only because I, I think California just is a little bit more efficient than, mm. than Florida. 
um, especially with mental health care. Because mm. uh, I hear you saying, I'm not trying to discourage anybody who is suicidal or going through a manic episode or severely depressed from from going to the hospital because that is where you go. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that there are some facilities that are very lacking here. Oh, yes. And I try to direct my patients to certain facilities because right. I've seen literal shitholes mm-hmm. um, where I would never want my family members to go. Right. And then I've seen um, places that are full of people who really care about their job mm-hmm. and really care about the patients that they're taking care of. And I was lucky to yeah. be in one of those places. And I have also heard horror stories, you know, from, you know, fellow um, like patients who are, talk about their experiences and they talk about the places that they've been to that are like, you know, life saving and life changing. And then they talk about the shitholes, mm-hmm. you know, and they talk about the very traumatic experiences in there. And then they also talk about like, you know, even even with that, you know, being there, like I, I, I needed to be somewhere, you know, that place I will never go back to. Um, but it was still like, like you said, it shouldn't discourage you from sh- from seeking help. Mm-hmm. And I think that also if there's a understanding in your support system or the people around you that you may at some point need to go to the hospital for this it's okay that it's okay and that they should be prepared to you know either guide you or take you if they're the ones that are going to take you um to one of those you know better places not the one like I don't want to throw any names out there, but one of the shitholes, you know, like let's let's avoid the shitholes and let's take you here where you need to go instead. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, that was that was like the regional hospital. And that I think that's a little bit rare because from what I understand and what I've heard um, from other people's experiences, sometimes regional hospitals are the ones that are not like the greatest. And again, my experience with that is limited because this, you know, it was my first time. Um, But. I have heard multiple things about that. And so I think it's a matter of doing your research, like when you're in a like stable place mm-hmm. um, and your support system doing their research as well. You know, like your your husband or wife, your partner, your parents, your siblings, like they should know. I think one of the biggest downfalls to the mental health care system here today, at least I can speak for South Florida, is mm-hmm. the lack of involvement in family, right? Yes. Um, I think family-centered care is what helps keep the patient stable. Mm-hmm. I think you need to educate um, and empower the support system because otherwise they feel lost. Yes. The main reason I came into mental health to begin with is because I've seen the cycle of psychosis, hospitalization, and discharge. Mm. Psychosis, hospitalization, discharge yep. with my Uncle Leo. Um, I love the guy to death. Uh, he's been struggling, not struggling. Now he's good. Um, <laughs> but I saw him struggle throughout his life mm-hmm. with mental illness and how it impacted not only him, his family, his immediate family, the surrounding family, his finances, his career, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Like how it impacted this individual, but how that individual not getting the proper care, how it impacted so many other aspects of his life. Mm-hmm. And so as I came into mental health care, I said, well, what can I do differently, right? Um, and so it's like when I hear stories like this one where there was family involvement, there was follow-up, um, it sounds like somebody, like you've had a lot of people in your corner that have really cared. And I think that means that we've definitely shifted from the health care that was being provided to my Uncle Leo in the 80s mm-hmm. where he was just hospitalized, discharged home, <laughs> no follow-up. 
Ah, that's yeah. it. Family never educated. Family never brought in. Um, when he would go for follow up medication management visits, it was like mm-hmm. he would walk in and guess what? You know what he would say? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's so easy. And then he would go home, <laughs> and his wife was like, well, "What would they tell you?" <laughs> and he's like, "Nothing." Mm-hmm. And guess what? Three days later, he's being Baker acted hospitalized again because the the paranoia and the irritability and the anger and the mood swings are very present. Yeah. L- loses his job, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And I think even so, yeah, a hundred percent. We're yeah. definitely way, 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 way better than that. At least you know here, in South Florida and in mm. California, from what I know. But even within that, there's still work to be done because, like, um. While I was in, before I was transferred to the residential, I had no idea what was happening with Daryl. You know, like he's the one who drove me to my appointment, and um, and I was able to send him a text like, "Hey, I'm they're calling him 5150. I'm gonna be transferred to the hospital," and that was kind of it. Um, and then they didn't contact like they didn't contact him for a while, a long enough time that they, you know, like, okay, where where is she? You know, like what's going on with her? Um. I when I finally was transferred to um, the residential, got my phone back. He didn't know anything. He didn't know the medications that they were putting me on. He didn't know how long I was going to be there for. They didn't explain to him what the transfer process was going to be. Um, and I think that that is something that's important as well. And I I get it. They're dealing with so many things. Mm-hmm. You know, there are so many so many other um, patients that are that their families that could be contacted and all that stuff. But I I do think that, um, like you said, family involvement is very, very important. And I I think that they should know what's going on as well because we can't be responsible in those moments. Like, the patient can't be responsible to let their families know what's happening with them when we we don't really know right away either. Um, Or we're not in a place to tell you. Yeah. You know, like, I, I believe that I'm, I, you know, I'm the person that's going to save the world right now. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to tell you, you know, oh, yeah, they're putting me on this medication and all that stuff. Like, no, that's not how that it, works. Were you, did you have moments where you were that, that you were in that state of mania where yes. you felt like I'm, I'm Jesus or I'm ready to save the world? No, because this <laughs> so is a that, common. Yeah, yeah. These are our, our grandiose delusions that mm-hmm. happen to a lot of people. Yeah. Where I'm a famous DJ or mm-hmm. um, Tom Brady's waiting for me downstairs. These are all grandiose delusions that a lot of people have. What yes. are some grandiose delusions that you had? One of the the first one that I ever had, um, and this was I was around 12 years old. Um, I started to believe that I could speak to dead people. Um, and I had to get all of my friends and family away from me because if they didn't, they were going to die. That was something that I believed so deeply and that I had, I had, to, I, oh, I couldn't tell anybody about what was happening. And the person that I told, um, <laughs> she was a, like my best friend at the time. Um, shout out, out, shout out Jordan. If you're, if you're, uh, <laughs> if you're watching this, um, <laughs> so she, I don't think she knew what to do. I mean, she was 12 too. We were, we were both 12. Like, what are you supposed to do? But I would tell her, like, I would, so she'd find me in the bushes, like talking to myself. Like, <laughs> um, and I was like, no, no, no. Like, you don't understand. Like the world is going to end those types of things. Mm-hmm. And, and looking back on it now, like, okay, something should have been done here. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the lying to my parents, the trying to hide everything, the teachers, like, completely ignoring the 
the written works that I was showing them with very dark, like just very, very dark writings. Mm -hmm. Like how are you going to ignore, you know, these, these things mm -hmm. from a kid. Um, but, uh, yeah, something, something definitely should have been done back then. And it wasn't, but she, um, she had a way of like telling me like, Oh no, like I'm your, I'm your part, almost not feeding into it, but like helping me kind of like, I don't know, like the you're going to you're going to be like, like, let me help you. If I yeah. help you, then, you know, the world's like the end. world's not going to end. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, that's kind of how that went. Like, So and I'm not going to ask you to get into whatever traumatic experience you had. If, if you don't want to, it's not necessary. Mm -hmm. um, but how so you're 12 years old and you have you start experiencing psychosis. Mm -hmm. You're hiding in the bushes. Jordan is probably freaking out. <laughs> when was it where you realized yourself like, hey, something is wrong here? So um, there was a morning um, at, at this time we were spending a year living in Vegas. Uh, my mom had gotten a job over there. And so we had moved from here to there. So it was a very sudden change. Um, I was still at 10 years old. The reason why I was in therapy at 10 years old was because I experienced the loss of a friend. Um, he had cancer. And um, I had I was 10 years old. Like that's a pretty young age. And so my parents were concerned. I had already been dealing with nightmares um, for as long as my first memory is of a, of a nightmare. That's like the first thing that I can remember. Um, and so they thought, okay, maybe it's time like with, with, you know, having just lost his friend and now her writings are getting more dark, like it's time. Um, so I went there and I had a little routine here of that. And then all of a sudden that changed. We went to Vegas, you know, I was in a new place with new people. Um, and uh, so there was one one morning before I started to believe this, that I was going to be the savior of the world. Um, everything seemed really bright, like like extra bright um, and the colors seemed more colory, like uh, like way more vibrant. Um, and I remember being like, wow, this is so cool. Like, am I going through puberty or something like this? That's what this is. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it became overwhelming, um, like throughout that day, it became overwhelming and I got home and I remember I was standing on our second, second floor balcony. And for some reason, uh, I remember looking down at the floor and being like, if I jumped off my balcony right now, I would float. And I, I believed that so deeply. And somehow I ended up on the ledge of the balcony and our neighbor, we lived in like a cul-de-sac. And then the neighbor looked up at me and was like, you okay? <laughs> Literally, like, the, his his voice, I will never get his voice out of me. He was like, you, you okay? Like, you're, you're you cool? You good? <laughs> and then I, I looked down and I was like, oh, yeah. And then he was like, you're not going to jump, right? And I was like, no, no, no. I got down. I went back inside. And I was like, that was really weird. And then over and over again. I started to hear his voice. Okay. You're not going to jump, right? Um, You're not going to jump, right? Over and over and over again. Yeah. And then it started to come from outside my head. And it was, you're going to jump. You're going to jump. You're going to jump. Oh, like, like a, like a symphony. Mm -hmm. And I, I literally, I, I got super quiet. I went into my room. I shut the door and I don't remember the next three days at all. Um, 
that was the first experience that I had with with that. Did that last? Then, did that continue, or did it just go away on its own? And then so that continued for a while. Um, not that intensity. That was the first like of of that intensity that I had ever experienced. Um, from there, I remember it turning into like anger. Like my parents just thought I was like angry. I was going through like a pre teenager phase. Um, I spent a lot of time in my room writing. Like I don't even know what I was writing. Um, and then from there, it kind of it started to things started to calm down a little bit. And then and then the belief that I was of the savior of the world started to come out. And the only person who I told um, that this was happening was my friend Jordan. I may have mentioned it a little bit to my sister. My sister is my best friend in the whole world. But at this time, she's not she's three years younger than me, like. She's annoying. She's this <laughs> annoying little girl. Like, I don't, I don't want to talk to you too much. Um, I love you to death, my Dallas. But um, at this time, you were kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, granted. <laughs> don't forget. Um, but yeah, so that that. You know was... what? I, I love that you sit here and you you're laughing. Like you, I just feel like your sense of your ownership when somebody has these vulnerable stories, right? And I feel like we can when you can speak it out into the air all of a sudden it gives you the power back. Once you're vulnerable and you expose it, that's it. It loses its power. Otherwise, you're just you're carrying this boulder around that you're trying to hide from any, everybody somehow. There's no hiding it, right? Because mm -hmm. you're going to have an episode. Something is going to happen. You're going to have scars in your leg when you wear a bathing suit. Um, and if you could just, now you put it on the table, that's it. Like It's no longer weighing you down. You can... Obviously, there's still work to do, right? Of course, of course. But it's no longer this thing that you're just carrying. Yeah, I mean, I, I've spent, you know, the majority of my life literally in silence about it all, hiding it. And and I think that now feeling like I can have this conversation with you, getting feedback from people when I share things on, on my Instagram, like um, people saying like, hey, you know, like I, I'm not at the point yet where I feel like I can talk about my experiences, but knowing that, you know, like I appreciate that you're sharing this to begin with and I feel like I'm not alone. I have somebody who I can relate to like that. That's such a huge thing. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that like, yeah, I'm sitting here laughing. It doesn't mean that I'm not also experiencing these things still. But like, fuck, I can talk about it yeah. <laughs> and, and it's OK for me to talk about. And you can laugh about it. Yeah. I get I can I, I had never in my life would I ever have imagined that I'd be sitting here talking to you about hearing voices and be laughing about it because that that has been like the one part of my life that has been the scariest thing. Like hear, hearing voices is like such a like oh no, you hear voice that's a whole nother level of mm -hmm. of like you're mentally ill, you hear voices. <laughs> like <laughs> you're sick. Yeah. Like like yeah, I fucking hear voices, okay? Yeah. Like, yes, I experience that. And it's fucking scary. And yet that shit can spiral quickly if 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 it doesn't like, you know, if I if I don't do my grounding techniques, if I don't, you know, if I'm not on medication, like that it can quickly turn from something that I'm laughing about to something very not laughable. We used to do a 12 minute um ex not experiment, exercise with mm -hmm. students uh, as we were 
I was teaching at the University of Miami, uh, and it was um, it was just psychiatry for for nurses, right? Mm-hmm. So they understood psychiatric nursing, what it's like to work in a psych ward. Part of it is just helping the the, the nurses gain empathy. How we do that is having them experience auditory hallucinations. Mm. How do you do that? Simple. AirPods. So I give you AirPods. I have another student who could either read a script or ad lib, just go for it, say whatever they want mm-hmm. into your ear, and I'm conduct- conducting a job interview with you. Mm. So I'm talking to you and I'm ask- I'm asking you questions while somebody's talking to you through the AirPods. <laughs> oh, yep. And you're trying to maintain this conversation here and try to be as professional as possible while having these voices. And you could see people just like as if you're having auditory, they get distracted, they start looking around and then, oh, I'm sorry. And some people couldn't go through 12 minutes of this exercise yep. because the level of stress was too much for them. Mm. They're like, it's, I'm, I'm too distracted. My heart rate's going up. And I'm like, and then at the end, we, we start breaking it down and having this conversation. And one of the things that always came up was like, that was only 12 minutes. Mm-hmm. Imagine living with this, you know, without treatment. Like, what does that become? Like, why do people become so irritable when they're experiencing auditory hallucinations? Because they want to control the environment around them. Mm-hmm. They want to keep you away. They're trying to deal with whatever it is that's going on in their head. Can you relate to that? Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought that up. Because I think that it's really hard for people to understand who've never experienced it before. Because it's... it's so Yes, talking about it makes it easier to talk about. Mm-hmm. right? And it, and it almost makes it seem casual. Mm-hmm. right? In the way that we're talking about it. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, she hears voices. It's not that like it's not that simple. It's not that like like a uh oh yeah, she just hears voices. No. It it, it is it is very much that. It's hard to focus. Uh, especially if it's you know, if you have if you're hearing multiple multiple voices depending on the severity of it, like how loud they are because sometimes they're not that loud. Sometimes it's like a whisper and it's yeah. easier to ignore. And yes, I've been dealing with it for a long time. Yes, I've I've like learned ways to pretend like i'm not hearing them but it it's not like it's not like that you can't just be like oh yeah just tune them out bitch you tune them out like (laughs) i want to i want to see you fucking tune tune this out you know for for an hour like when it's when it's really really bad it's hard for people to understand who've never experienced it all of this is you know everything it's hard for people to understand real, like real depression when they've never experienced real depression. Everybody gets depressed a hundred percent, but experiencing like depression, it's hard to understand why can't you get out of bed? Like, why can't you just, you know, go shower like that? That's hard to understand. It's hard to understand mania when you have never experienced it. Or oh, you've, you've never get, seen it. Yeah, you've never or you've never seen it. Yeah. That's another thing too. A lot of people have never seen what mania actually looks like. When I tell people that somebody who has just made a legit suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. How palpable the darkness is in the room. Mm-hmm. I can tell you you feel it. Mm-hmm. When you walk into a room that there's nothing more than a bed and a chair, that person. Um and again, you know, trigger warning, right? Absolutely. Um, please. Uh, there was a patient, I remember, he took a bunch of Ambien and his plan was to um, drive off the side of the highway or something like that. 
And so he took a bunch of Ambien. He jumps on I-75. He starts speeding down the road. And his plan was to go into like one of these canals or lakes. Well, I, as he took too many Ambien, he waited too long. And he starts swerving mm. side to side. He gets pulled over. He pulls over. But what he proceeded to do was get a box cutter. When the cop walked in, it was like, oh, I, I, uh, license registration. And he just started slicing himself because he just wanted out. Mm-hmm. Well, when I sat down and spoke to this gentleman, I can tell you that the room just felt so heavy and mm-hmm. so dark. And I was like, oh, this is what depression. Like, I don't know what he's feeling personally, but I can feel it in the room around him. Mm-hmm. And so when I tell people like, I understand their level of depression, but I like sometimes you just you feel it. Yeah, that person who can't get up to to use the restroom, they'd rather lay in bed, almost catatonic, and just urinate or defecate on themselves. Mm-hmm. That's a whole nother level, right? Yeah. And so I think it goes back to the therapist that you mentioned before, who has never stepped foot in that psych ward and never really understood like what is it like to be in there, and what are the degrees of individuals who can be in a psych ward. Mm-hmm without judgment like everybody's going there to get help but if you have never seen it then it's very hard for you to empathize also yes and so that's why we would do these exercises with the students and that's why it's important for people who are in this field to really get down in the mud and and go to hey don't just go to the high level therapy center where everybody's walking in and it's a cash pay center everything's clean (laughs) there's classical music in the background no Mm -hmm. you need to go to the different to the the whole spectrum. Yes. So you understand what is mental health care and who are the people that you're serving. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me ask you, what's something that you wish people understood about living with bipolar disorder? Oh, so many things. <laughs> <laughs> so many. I mean, that I think it just it continues to go back to the whole you don't you don't know what this is really like and because you've never experienced it. And I think that, um, you know, there's a lot more understanding of what bipolar disorder is now than there was even, you know, like five, 10 years ago. Um, because I think the idea that bipolar disorder is you're, you're happy and then you're angry, you're happy and then you're sad, like Mm -hmm. has definitely like gone away more so. Um, because I, I haven't personally like experienced that from a lot of people anymore. Um, but they use the term Lucy. Oh, oh, she's bipolar. Oh, he's bipolar. Yes. And it's like, well, bipolar doesn't mean that you go from angry to sad. That's yeah. not what it means. Well, I I literally heard that like three days ago. Yeah. The weather has been so bipolar lately. Oh. I'm like, yeah, you're like <laughs> come on now. Yeah. Like, we're in 2023, guys. Like, yeah. we don't need to be saying that anymore. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that, um, I think people need to understand that bipolar disorder is so much more than just mania and depression as well. I mean, yes, that is what bipolar disorder is, but you know, there's multiple types there. It's more than just being happy and sad. And the experience isn't just, Oh, you're depressed, you know, go do some yoga and do this. And I mean, that can go for just depression in general as well, or you're manic. Oh, she just needs to do some grounding techniques. Like, like that it's it's so much more than that and yes those things are important very important um but the whole you know the the hospitalization thing the stigma around medication um the you know different levels of support that people need that individuals need based on their needs you know based on where they are in their um stability 
I think that all of those things are important. Um, I think that family definitely needs to be more educated first, then involved. Mm. Because I think that family try they, they try to get involved before they understand something, and that can lead to things being a lot more complicated than they need to be. You know, if you don't, if you are the mother of somebody who has bipolar disorder and you have no idea what bipolar disorder is or what type your child has, like, you you can't help. Also, it's funny that you're saying this and you just, an alarm went off in my mind. <laughs> you're, oftentimes people are seeking help. They're either seeing a therapist or they're taking medications to help manage some sort of psychiatric issue. Mm-hmm. And the family, you get into a conflict with a family member and it's like, oh, you need to go change your medications. Mm. Or you need to you need to go call your therapist. It's time for you to do a little bit more therapy. Yeah. Dude, that is not the approach. Not like, at like, all. Please do not use this against them. If, especially if they're trying to get better. You're weaponizing mm-hmm. using a treatment that they're trying to go to. And now you're gonna you're gonna cause a person to actually turn against this. Mm-hmm. Cause now you're using it as an oppositional force um where now they have to. Now they have to defend themselves. Oh, I don't need more. And so, what's the natural response? You're going to defend your. I don't need more therapy. I don't need more medication. Mm-hmm. But the, the therapy and the medication probably had nothing to do with that conflict in that moment. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, and that and I think it, that just it's it's the same thing. It's it's the education thing. Like it's it's the listening to to your family members talk about it in a non judgmental way. Like if 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 I could have a conversation. Um, you know, my, my parents have gotten a lot better about it. And like I mentioned before, I love them to death. But, you know, they've had their own views and they have their own, you know, mental health issues as well that mm-hmm. I think some have gone unaddressed for a long time. I'm, I think all of our families <laughs> I do. I can say 100%. Yes, I, I, think I think all any, our families do. Any family, any immigrant family who has come here to the United States probably has some trauma. Yeah, absolutely. If you've had to run away from a government and abandon everything mm-hmm. that you know, including the language everything that was familiar to you, your friends, your community, I think that's traumatic. Just write that down. Just a little bit. Just think about that. Sit on that. But, you know, being able to have honest conversations without the fear of that kind of response or the opposite, like you don't need medication, you need, you know, structure and routine (laughs) or, yeah, freaking ayahuasca. Like you need that. Like if, if there's a balance, you know, for people who have mental illness there is there is routine and structure is important 100 percent. medication and therapy is fucking important 100 percent. you know if either of those things fall out of balance you're gonna fall out of balance that's just the way that it is and i think that if families understood that and if they weren't so quick to respond and things like that i i think that it would be it would be better um, and I think that, like I said before, I think education needs to come before involvement in mm-hmm. this case. And that's kind of sad because, you know, that takes longer. Yeah. It takes longer for people to get educated, actually educated on something. You know, it, it takes a long time for a person's viewpoints on something to change um, or to shift in a little way. And that means that you're going to be stuck, you know, one, dealing with the issues that you're dealing with, and two, also trying to help these people understand so that they can be a better support to you in the process for a longer period of time. Um, But it has to happen because otherwise, like, you're just stuck on your own and we can do this alone. Like, I, I, I am here today 
because of my support system, 100%. My support system has, has also, at certain points in time, been the reason why I have struggled so much. And I can say both of those things are true. Now it's more so the opposite, right? It's more so they're the reasons why I'm still here. Um, and it's taken a long time to get here. So how has your relationship with yourself changed over time? Ooh, that's tough. Um, I think now I'm in a place where, so uh, definitely, as I've mentioned before, it's been a lot of shame. It's been a lot of you're fucking crazy for experiencing the things that you're experiencing. Um, I've held a lot of the same like stigma on myself that society has, you know, I've, I've gone through the, I don't need medication. I can deal with this on my own. Some of that is like, you know, in hypomania, I'm like, Oh, I feel great. I don't fucking need medication. But, um, I think that now I, I have bipolar disorder. I hear voices. I sometimes see things and feel things. And that's, for me, that's a no, like I know that that's gonna happen, and right now in this moment today, I can say like I'm gonna fucking keep fighting. I'm gonna keep fighting to stay here, to stay in this stable place that I'm in. You know, sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but if I can continue to carry this feeling with me of I'm having this fucking cool ass conversation with you that a bunch of people are going to hear who may be experiencing these things as well and who may have never talked about it or may have never met somebody who also is experiencing these things. Like, I want to continue to do that. I want to continue to, like, try to use this darkness to make light. And, yeah, this shit is really painful sometimes, but... Life is fucking painful sometimes too, you know, Amen. even without this. Yeah. So I think that I'm, I'm in a, a much better place today than I, well, for sure, a much better place today than I was a year ago today. Um, and I think just in general with myself, for sure. How have you handled the stigma along the way? <laughs> um, that's been something that has shifted for sure. Mm -hmm. I think when I first started talking about this a couple of years ago, um, I didn't handle it very well. You know, I, I was kind of like, it was scary to talk about. I wasn't very, uh, I was just putting out little pieces because I was afraid like, oh, if I tell people that I'm hearing voices, that same response is going to come out. So I omitted that information. Um now it's kind of like if I don't if I don't talk about these things openly, the stigma is not going to go away. So I think my relationship with the stigma has just kind of been like it's more so like, OK, this exists. And in order for it to not exist anymore, we need to put it in the forefront of the conversation. Um, and that might be awkward and uncomfortable for a lot of people, but. It, it needs to happen, you know, if you've never if you if. I had a friend who had never, like, he thought hearing voices was fake. And it's like, well, hey, I, I hear voices. Like, this is something that I experience. I'm like, oh, so you're not just bi bipolar disorder. Like, you you have, like, schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, I don't have schizophrenia. I have bipolar disorder. I experience, like, psychosis. Mm -hmm. um, and it's I had really, a whole... Yeah, it's really hard for people to differentiate. And 
honestly, even in school, when you study the difference between schizo, not schizophrenia, but schizoaffective disorder and bipolar one. Yeah. Like that takes some time for people to differentiate. Mm -hmm. And even sometimes the symptoms overlap. So I get it. Yeah. And but but and then even more so, I think, for somebody who who has no training in in that kind of thing, um, I think that it's just it's just a matter of um, like not I'm not going to let the stigma stop me from talking about what I'm experiencing, because one day me talking about it is going to lead to somebody else talking about it. And that's going to lead to three more people talking about it. And then it's going to be like the people who are saying these things, it's 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 not true. Mm-hmm. It's not true, you know, and and like that's the only way, you know, truth coming out is the only way to um, like dispel the stigma. And that's that's I I believe that wholeheartedly we can't get rid of it without talking about these these things like the hospitalization thing. Nobody talks about that. That's such a like a taboo thing. I can I don't know. My uncle Leo won't even talk to me about it. Yeah. And I I I'm straight up I I uh, I confront him. I ask yeah. him questions. I'm like, "Yo, how was it?" Like, yeah. Did they treat you good? He's like, "I'm just happy to be out." I'm like, "All right." Cool. Yeah, and that's and that's the thing. It's like it, it's uh, yeah, of course. He's happy to be out because he's stable. You know, yeah. he's like in a place where he can be out. But, you know, how many people could benefit from hearing his story? You know, like I want him to sit here across from me. Yeah. So, so I that, think it's cool to sit here across mm-hmm. from you because in a way, no matter what, sorry, Leo, no matter what, I'm getting your story out there <laughs> against your will. You're my uncle. I don't give a shit. It's affected my whole life. It's the reason I'm doing what I'm doing. So I'm going to tell your story and you're going to hear your story <laughs> through other people that sit across from me because it's the same thing that people are reliving over and over. And until we talk about it like this openly that's the only way that we're going to put a dent in all and other people experiencing the same thing without yes. the right help, without the right support, without the stigma associated with medications or the mental illness in general. Mm-hmm. Right. Like how how has how difficult was it for you to to come to terms with, oh, shit, I need to take medication so I could be stable. It was hard. It, it took me a long time. I mean. Uh, it took probably until like maybe maybe even three years ago like i i i did not want to take medication and a lot of that was my family's doing my dad is still of the belief that you don't you don't need medication to function no you could walk it off yeah exactly (laughs) and he's gotten better at it especially because of my last because of the hospitalization i think that made it more real that was like oh shit okay like yeah we need this is maybe this is good like maybe this is a good thing um but yeah that 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 was like that's just one one of them you know that that that's a long time i, I was like oh, I, can, I can deal with this without medication so how do you mentioned a little while ago oh i'm hypomanic i feel great <laughs> right so that's the those are the patients that are difficult to really help navigate towards medications because mm-hmm. you know the psycho the psychotic episode is coming right mm-hmm uh, you're in a state of hypomania. Hypomania is like you feel elated, like there's mm-hmm. euphoria or, or, or euthymia, right? Or you just feel good. A good. I'm in a good mood. I feel great. Then there's an elevated mood, which is hypomania. And some people live in a state of hypomania where they're very high functioning, very driven. Um, they'll never go into a manic episode, mm-hmm. right? So, but somebody like yourself who has had a manic episode, how do I convince you? You're in hypomania. You feel great. How do I convince you to take a medication that kind of brings you down off of that? I have been that patient. Yeah. 
like I, I have been the patient that is like, no, 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 I don't I don't need medication. I have been the patient who has had medication in my hands and chosen. I don't I don't need this. Like and I and now looking back on younger Mel, I'm like, you have no idea how many people like needed that medication too. <laughs> I mean, you you need this medication, but how many people like like you have the opportunity in your hands, like take it, you yeah. know? Um, I think that it's it's hard as fuck to convince somebody who's hypomanic to be like, no, you need to take this because this is not normal. Yeah. Like this is not a normal state. Yeah, it feels fucking great. And I, I will tell you straight up, I en- you enjoy I it. enjoy yeah, I enjoy I, I hesitated there. Yeah. I hesitated because it's it's yeah, it's it's hard to say. Like, yeah, I I I enjoy being hypomanic. I get the most done, well. Sometimes I yeah. get the a lot of times it's kind of scattered, but I feel like I can get the most done mm-hmm. in that state. You know, I can function on two hours of yeah, sleep. I have amazing like, ideas. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, that's literally when I come up with like the best things and then I never act on them. And that's fucking depressing. <laughs> like To quote fucking Johnny Tapia from Bad Boys, like this is fucking depressing. Yeah. That's how I feel afterwards, you know, and it's like if if. To be honest with you, I don't really know how to convince somebody in that state that they need this medication other than when they come down from it to say this is going to help avoid this crash that you're experiencing right now. Or the hospitalization. Or the hospitalization from not addressing this moment now. Mm-hmm. You know, like staying in that that like stable state is is the safest thing you know like right now where i'm at where i'm at right now is is the safest place for me to be 100 percent. i know i i and i can see it coming like i i know that i'm gonna go one way or the other you know to a certain degree i know that those voices are not gone but i i am aware that right now in this place i'm safe in those states I can still be safe if I stick to my routine and I don't stop taking my medication. Um, what what I know that you're part of. Shout out to the move uh, move lift <laughs> move lift. Li- I don't know why it's move, always, lift, lift, lift. I, I don't know why it's always a tongue tongue twister. Tongue twister. The move lift live movement. Um, I know that the shout out to Chris Espinal by the way because I didn't give him a, a, a nice shout out la- last time and I. I really appreciate you, oh, Chris. He's the reason that this can happen in general. Yeah, so. for sure. Um, what a cool... I've never... I've hung out with Chris, <laughs> like, not even that much. But I feel close to him. It's, mm-hmm. it's so interesting. Um, what has your daily routine and this support system at Move, Lift, Live done for you? Oh, so much. You know, like... So re- recently we moved, my ha- we helped my parents move to Davie. Okay. So our routine got a little, a little crazy uh-huh. for a little while. We were eating Dunkin' Donuts every morning. Hmm. Um, and that led to a noticeable change in, you know, my, how I feel and how Daryl felt. And for me, because of how long I've spent in this state of, eh, I'm just going to deal with what I'm feeling. I, I can live with that. And then it spirals later on. Mm-hmm. Daryl is not like that. Daryl, I, I credit Daryl with, with being the reason why I can stay on a routine, build a routine for myself at all. Because before him, that never existed. Daryl is very regimented. Mm-hmm. And so he, and 
I also want to say, I, I said earlier, this wouldn't have happened without Chris, but Daryl is really the reason why I, this meeting happened that move, lift, live came into our lives because he's a fucking incredible athlete. Mm. And like that, th- that is what led to all of this happening. So, but the crew there just has this energy mm. and they uplift each other when one person is like, you know, failing in, in some way or, or struggling in, in any way, they pick up for each other. And when I came in, or when we came in, and then I started to, they started to learn more about me and what my experiences have been. Um, they were like, welcome. Welcome. Yeah. Like, we're, we're your tribe. We're here for yeah. you. Yeah, like we're here for you. You know, they don't they don't just call themselves a village for you know no reason. Like like Troy, Chris, like the main team, they fully believe that. You know, like one person can't do anything like alone. Yeah, you, you can get somewhere, but with a fucking village behind you, you can do anything. And that includes like when you're in your darkest places. And, you know, um, three months ago, I, I um, had an emergency surgery because I, I was pregnant unknowingly um, and it, it put my life in danger, you know. So Daryl took me to the ER and they were like, we need to do this surgery to save your life. And that was fucking hard. And that definitely triggered, you know, some depression for me. I was also unmedicated. So it, it was... It was a very scary place to be in. And I remember the first time I walked back into the gym, literally the 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 energy, like everybody knew that I was there. And there were tears from our friends just to see me walk in. And like I in that like the support that I feel from them is just it's so different you know they're an amazing group of people and i think that you know they have their faults like we all do of course there's there's areas where you know everybody can be picking up for each other as well but they know it and the emphasis on support for each other is something that I think should exist in a lot more spaces. I was about to ask you, it's extremely rare. Yeah. Like what you're describing is extremely rare. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, I I know of zero other places that sound like that right, <laughs> right now, currently in South Florida and Miami. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. Espe- yeah, I think I think the, the culture here here and I think it's a shift it's shifting a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, but it's not so much on on that type of support, you know. But this place is. You know, they welcomed Daryl and I with open arms. They knew nothing about about us, really. They knew that Daryl was a professional parkour athlete and he's fucking incredible. And that that was it at that moment. And they were like, yeah, come come to us. You know, we brought my sister um, and they knew nothing about her. They knew nothing about my sister and they welcomed her. You know, with with open arms. And. You know, she has built a, a little relationship with individual people there in the gym, too. So it's it's like 
just the the amount of support and like openness from them is is definitely something that I think should exist in multiple spaces. And I mean, that's a hard thing to create. Um, but and there but the thing is that they're continuing to educate themselves on all levels of of, you know, things that their members or their own staff are experiencing. Um, and, you know, even like Chris setting, you know, setting this up, mm-hmm. the, the, the TKO, like that was a huge thing that ex- exposed a lot of people to this conversation. Yeah. You know, T- just say a little bit about what TKO was. Um, the transformation kickoff, Chris and uh, and Troy, they, they started um, it was a, a six week, eight week. Yeah. Eight week program. Um, then they had uh, a different speaker every week. Um, and the goal was to help change people's lives. Like not not in the oh you're going to lose 30 pounds and your life is going to be changed. Like, no, in in all areas. So mental health, you were the speaker for the first week. They had breath work. They had nutrition. They had physical therapy. Um, they had um, Carl Paoli came on, you know, the um, there was there was just multiple aspects of your life that you can take control over, not just your fitness, but different areas that all culminate um, and help you like, you know, feel like outside of the workspace, I have all of these other things that I can do to take care of myself mm. and make myself feel good and make me healthy, actually healthy. Not I eat, you know, this way and I work out this much mm. because that's not, that's not just what health is. Right. Of course. So it was all areas like really like a real transformation, like, you know, from caterpillar to butterfly type thing, <laughs> like, like actually, actually changing people. So and that that was beautiful. We got to be a part of the talks um, and I took something away from each one, you know, like it was a beautiful thing. And that's just one area of like, you know, learning. I mean, they they do so many different things like that. So, yeah, Move of Live is a fucking incredible place. <laughs> just to, <laughs> that was to, a whole commercial. To come back. Yeah, to come back. That was a that was a Move Lift commercial. And uh, I love you guys. So that's awesome. So. <laughs> So let me ask you, how has your experience with bipolar disorder changed, uh, I guess, the way that you view mental health in society? Mm. I think because I I have been um, dealing with this for the majority of my life, um, I I don't think I really ever saw mental health um, in the way that society views it. I think I definitely had some beliefs of it, um, you know, just from picking up like things that I heard from my parents or things that I've heard, you know, in, in like movies and stuff like that. Um, but I think that a lot of people neglect their mental health. Like they think that, you know, if they get enough sleep and they work out or they're doing something that they love, that that's going to be the thing that keeps their mental health, you know, fine. But you could be working in something that you absolutely love, you know, every day eating the right things and working out regularly and doing all these things, things to take care of yourself and still not feel great, mm-hmm. you know, or still experiencing, experience these things. Um, and I think that society needs to do a better job of, of recognizing that, that those are not like 
the the things that um lead to i mean it's it's hard it's hard to say that anything leads to anything yeah and i think that that's something that i've had to learn i think that scares the shit out of people right oh yeah if you tell them you are anthony bourdain and you have the the job that you dream of yep you're surrounded by people who admire you you're on tv you're traveling the world Mm -hmm. you have more money than you ever dreamed of you've transitioned from being a cook um sweaty all day to producing whatever you want wherever you want with whoever you want you're having conversations with barack obama to whoever and you decide to take your life mm-hmm. even to me as a mental health professional i was like what the yeah. fuck is going on like this i want effect. to be like him mm-hmm. right so when you start telling people you can have all these things and your mental health is still affected people are like well then what can i do mm-hmm. and i, I think I think it goes back to a lot of self-discovery, asking yourself hard questions, looking at childhood traumas, yes. looking at how these different events in your life have shaped your life. How have they affected you? How did that relationship when you were 15 affect you now at 35 or 45 or yep. 55? Um, I so, think yeah. these are hard things too for people to look at. And I think that's why it's so like it's so prevalent to ignore those things. And then you see all of these people who are very successful, like still ending up like this because you spend all of this time ignoring all of these things like, oh, yeah, that that thing that happened to me when I when I was 15. Eh, not a big deal. Not a big deal. Not a big deal. You know, immigrating to this country happens to a lot of people. Yeah, it's 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 very. And then and then, yeah, you, you have all of these things with you and then you're still like, oh, there's still like a hole in me. Why? Why yeah. do I still feel this thing? Or you're you're in a healthy relationship mm -hmm. and you forgot about that relationship that happened to you 20 years ago. Yep. Right. And then you're you're constantly thinking, oh, my God, uh, she's going to leave me or Mm -hmm. this person's not going to be here anymore or this is going to end anyways. Why am I thinking this way? Well, it goes back to the bullshit. It shows up. All of these things show up. And I think that, like, as a society, we need to acknowledge that um, it isn't just about having these conversations right that's super important to bring attention to it of course but you you do have to look at yourself and say like okay i may have everything that i want but you know what what is inside me that is making me feel this way um i think that's the hardest thing for so many people yeah. is to look in the mirror and say, it's Wait, scary it's fucking on? yeah it's scary to look at yourself mm-hmm. for sure and uh, and i think that if if people looked at themselves more then society would be so different because then we wouldn't judge as much like oh i i see this in you i have it too mm-hmm. you know like we we connect there mm-hmm. um and uh, yeah i think that that would be a way we'd be in a way less painful society if that if a lot of people were like that um and and if uh if we cared more because i think that with this conversation um people will listen and then you know a couple weeks later something is going to happen with somebody who they know and they're going to be like she's fine like she's not she's she's fine something that um i i recently learned about the the death of a weightlifter he committed suicide and uh it was very much, there was a lot of, we, we, like I knew, I saw this, I saw the signs and I, I didn't make the time to talk to you. 
And I'm so sorry. I should have made the time. And I think that as a society, we, and just in, in, in the topic of suicide, you know, we care more about suicide than those who are suicidal. Mm. Um, and I think that that doesn't only exist there. I think that also exists in, you know, um, a lot of areas of mental health. I think until the most extreme, you know, thing that can happen with somebody who is experiencing anything happens. Uh, we'll deal with it later. We'll deal with it later. We'll deal with it later. Um, and I think that 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 has been the most and even within ourselves. Right. Like even myself, I, I have been guilty of waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting until something gets to a breaking point to do anything about it. And that's a that's a problem. That's a problem that can be solved by not waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And I think that problem is solved by educating. Absolutely. And by also having more access. Right. Mm -hmm. So access to that's care. another thing. Um, that's another thing. So you're here. So, okay, th let's just bring this up. So you're mm -hmm. here in Florida, mm -hmm. but you have insurance in California. Yep. And you begin to seek mental health care. And mm -hmm. I'm not trying to plug anything. I'm just telling it like it is. Yeah. No, um, no, 100%. So tell me, what, what was that like for you as you're like, oh, shit, I'm without medications. I'm not in California. I have no way to get to back to California right now. Mm -hmm. What do you do? What steps did you take? So I, um, I did the thing. <laughs> That I do, which is wait, unfortunately. Uh, even up until now, I'm going to be fully transparent here. Yeah. I waited until yeah. the last minute. I knew that I was running out of medication. I knew that I, I, I couldn't get the prescription here because of the county insurance. It can only be prescribed over there. Some people don't have that. Some people are lucky that they can get medication anywhere. Um, but so I... Ran out of one of my medication. I was looking around. Everything was, you know, even to get a consultation was very, very expensive. How much? Just shoot it off. Um, upwards of $300. I mean, I think the cheapest was maybe $250, mm -hmm. um, which for a lot of people isn't bad. For me, in the position that I was in, I could not afford that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just the consultation. That's not the, like, appointment to get the medication and then... The medication itself. Um, so I reached out to you. Uh, and um, I'm lucky and blessed to have had that uh, that access. Um, even in this access that you helped make it possible for me to get set up with um, an appointment. Uh, I found so the, the medication was still going to be. Very expensive. expensive yeah. um, and then we started working with GoodRx. Um, this is not a GoodRx commercial, but it's going to sound <laughs> like one. That's good, though. <laughs> because it's important for people to know. Yeah. So so GoodRx. So one of my medications, which is Abilify, um, it's an antipsychotic. Mm -hmm. uh, that one was going to be like, I mean, a ridiculous amount of money, like $180, I think, was like the cheapest for a 30-day supply of one of the lower doses that I had, like the starting dose, not my normal dose. Um, so like five milligrams or? Yeah, I think something like that. Okay. It wasn't, so I'm, I'm on 30 or 20 
and the fi- like the the starting dose was like one hundred and eighty dollars a month okay. or for for thirty day supply. Gotcha. GoodRx um, brought that down. Depending on which pharmacy that you go to, um, for for us it ended up being at Publix. Um, that pharmacy and it ended up being like twenty dollars. That's crazy. Through GoodRx, and all you have to do is find a pharmacy that takes GoodRx, which is most of them. Most of them take it now. But back when I, the first time I ever tried to use it, Walgreens didn't take it yet. Mm. But now Walgreens is taking it. And you can get medications for as low as $2.99 that are supposed to be, you know, like yeah, 80 but- to like $200. Like it's ridiculous. But so if you're if you're looking for medication and you have the prescription, but you can't afford it, good RX. go to GoodRx yeah, go to good <laughs> because it's, good. it's totally worth it. Um, it was, but yeah, it was cool because you reached out to me randomly, and Instagram does this <laughs> a lot, right? I get these. I swear, I, I talk about this a lot, but people don't understand what my DMs look like. Oh my gosh, I can only imagine. They're actually they're pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're cool in the sense where people are reaching out, mm-hmm. and that's all that matters to me. Um, so yeah, when people slide in my DMs, it's not just no, just no, just no excitement, guys. I'm sorry, <laughs> it's not what you guys are thinking. Um, it's uh. It's people that are seeking some sort of help or guidance. Mm-hmm. And it's honestly, it's an honor and a privilege for anybody who comes to me and asks me. So when you asked me, I was like, oh, awesome. Because <laughs> actually we have this thing called AMP Access that we just started. Um, so I have this thing. Actually, is it here? No, I think I took it out of here. So I have a wooden bell. And I got this wooden bell when I was on a missions trip. And I forgot if I was in Haiti or Dominican Republic. And for whatever reasons, it's in English. And it says, <laughs> nobody hears the cry of the poor or the sound of the wooden bell. Mm. Because it's just like a thud, right? Mm-hmm. And so that always stood in my head. So I I was like, I want to have a nonprofit. And I want the nonprofit to help people who don't have access to mental health care or give mental health care at a very affordable rate. Mm-hmm. And we're just getting started. Don't um, This is not a huge <laughs> foundation. The Wooden Bell Foundation is not anywhere. There, we're not having 5Ks yet, people. Mm. Um, but... You were the first person that I was able to to provide that help to, which was pretty cool. That's yeah, that's that. I when you told me that, I was like, this. I think maybe a week <laughs> a week before this, yeah. like before I reached out to you, I think Daryl that a week before us, uh, before that, Daryl and I had a conversation about like, because I I was frustrated. I I was waiting for my psychiatrist to call me back to see what kind of like options I had essentially. And we were having the conversation of like this type of access like needs to exist because it, it doesn't really like there there are small areas where it does and those communities benefit greatly but there are so many more more communities who don't have anything close to that so then when I reached out to you and you said that I, we literally I think we spent like two hours just talking about after that like what an amazing like thing that is because. Yeah. That can change so many people's lives. We're in Miami. <laughs> There's people up the street in the Grove, two miles that way, right? Yeah. Who live in a penthouse that's a $50 million penthouse for 4,000 square feet. Yeah. All right? Like, there's yachts out there that are worth I don't know how much. Like, we should be able to just take care of the people that are here mm-hmm. that maybe don't have that kind of money. Yep. But that somehow... The, the money that's floating around the city has to reach people who really need it. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean. And it, has, it hasn't been. And, it that's, hasn't been. And, that, and, it, and there's no reason why it shouldn't. 
Like I'm I'm literally shaking just like because yeah, like this it it helped me and I I'm not even like the the most in need no, or course. anywhere near it. Yeah. You know, like there there are people who who don't know that this exists yet. Mm-hmm. And when they do, like the amount of of difference in their life that this will make is just you can't even put it into words because then nobody nobody has that right now yeah and there there are people who absolutely need it to save their lives to save their lives 100 percent. and you're fucking doing that shit right well, now like you're, you're working on it you're I'm working trying. on it I'm and that, and i'm seeing it and it, it is just so fucking incredible i'm trying it's just uh there's a lot it's a lot no to, yeah it is it i and i i understand that like yeah. i understand that. it's not as simple as just being like oh here, here you go, go. <laughs> like yeah let's just do this like no i i get it it takes time but the fact that you're like taking the steps to make it happen how many people aren't doing that you know like how many people aren't even really considering that yeah. and that's the thing that that is like you know, even even the sliding scale that you introduced, mm-hmm. like I, I saw that recently, mm-hmm. like that's incredible that that doesn't it's not just you go into this place and you oh, one hundred and fifty dollars for 30 minutes. Like, okay, I, I can't afford that. Can you work with me? No, sorry. You got to find somewhere else. Like, mm-hmm. oh, like this is this is this is new. not everybody needs this, mm-hmm. but for the people who do need it. That makes a difference. That's that's you get therapy or you don't. Yeah, you know, hundred percent. That's that's what that is, and that's life changing. I hope so. I mean, I know it will be. Um, yeah, I know it will be. I know it will be. Um, yeah, I know it is already. No, I was gonna say no, no, no doubt, <laughs> no doubt at all. Like that's that is that is both life changing and life saving. So I think this all stems back, and again, I'm gonna put my uncle Leo out there on the spot because I'm doing this. I'm not trying to get emotional right now. <laughs> Suck it up, Adrian. Suck it up. Um, it, no, I know. Of course, it is. It is. It is. No, but um. He said, Gabe, if you didn't hear him, he said, it's okay to be emotional, bro. <laughs> Shut up, Gabe. <laughs> no, I love you, Gabe. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's that. I, I knew, it's. it goes back to, a, you know, 20-something-year-old kid sitting in the psych ward with people and everybody questioning him why. It goes back to um, me being a, a 10-year-old kid and seeing my uncle go through psychosis. And then as I grew older, understanding like, oh, wait, my family just treats this as Leo is sick and don't tell anybody about this and don't talk about it and don't question him about it. And this is that and that's it. Um, it goes back to getting people the healthcare that they need mm-hmm. so that their families stay intact. It goes back to all of that. And so that's why I'm... I, Sure, this thing is gonna grow and it's gonna generate revenue. Cool, awesome. But that's not that's not what I got into it for in the beginning. You know, I got into it to help people like Leo, like Mel, like whoever, mm-hmm. like whoever needs it. Um I worked on the streets with the homeless for a long time and it was the same thing. Like, how do we get these people? These people I've seen people with craniectomies discharged to the street. Yeah. Like so it's 
it's just bizarre. So I no, I can't save everybody. I can't be Superman. Of course. But, but damn, if somebody reaches out to me, you better you better fucking believe I'm gonna do what I can to help them. Um, especially if it's somebody like you who I know that you're trying to do all the things, you're trying to access care, you're trying to access meds, and it's like you're running into brick walls that are made of fucking <laughs> money. Yep. Right? Yeah, absolutely. That's terrible. No, it's horrible. It's the worst thing. Like so. to, to to feel like you you know, you've you had this routine and then for whatever reason it's pulled out from under you and now you're literally on like you have like a week left of medication and you don't know what to do. Like to not have an option, to not have anything and to be faced with the reality that I'm going to run out of this medication and I know what that leads to. And then and then you have nowhere to go from there. Like that's a that's a terrible feeling. That's yeah. a terrible, terrible feeling. And for something like this to exist, you know, to be coming into existence, yeah. like that's a beautiful and super important thing. And I think that, you know, so many other places will benefit from, you know, maybe seeing this I hope so. and starting to implement something similar mm-hmm. in, in whatever way that looks like. Yeah. But something for the people in their communities that are in need. Of course, they can't help help everybody either, you know. But the people within their reach, you can do something, yeah. you know. Or you can start to do something and start looking for something to do, you know. And and I think that seeing this will hopefully spark that. I hope so, too. Because it's so important. Thank you so much, Mel. Mel, mm-hmm. is there anything that we kind of didn't touch on? Or is there any any message? Actually, what do you want to say to that person who is Mel a couple years ago? Who isn't seeking mental health care? Who might be going through whatever episodes they're going through. Whether it's just severe depression, panic episodes. But they're just in fear of what mental health care is. They're fearing the stigma, the judgment of others, the judgment of their family. What do you say to that person? I think that people are going to judge no matter what. It doesn't matter who they are to you. Your health comes first. It doesn't matter if it's your mom. It doesn't matter if it's your partner. It doesn't matter. Because ultimately, if you don't seek the help that you need, you're not going to be here anymore to experience what life has to offer. And yeah, what life has to offer sometimes is painful. But there's a lot of beauty in it too. And I think that it's important to do it for yourself. Because having other people to do it for is super important. And a lot of the times when I feel like I can't do it for myself, I do do it for those people. You know, I do it for my sister. I do it for Daryl. I do it for the Move Lift crew. But if I can't come back to doing it for myself, then, you know, then I'm not really doing it for the right reasons. Because... At the end of the day, if none of that existed, I'm still here. You know, 
and and I still have to take care of myself and I spend so much time not doing that and my body deserves love and I deserve to be taken care of I deserve to take care of myself and you are not alone ever thank you so much thank you for this opportunity <laughs> this is why I, I started this podcast for, for moments like today so thank you thank you thank you thank you you can find Mel at Mel State of Mind as I wipe tears <laughs> off my eyes um, what else tell them your handles <laughs> give them whatever you want to tell it's, them <laughs> it's all pretty much Mel State of Mind I've changed everything to that because it's easier um, but yeah I mean I post a lot of things on Instagram or not a lot of things but I try I try to post things on Instagram Oh, I wrote a book. I, I meant to bring it for you and I forgot. I did do that. I did write a book. Um, I write a book. It's, it's available on Amazon um, at the link in my bio as well. It's called I Shaved My Legs Today. It's a poetry book. I shaved my legs today. I yes. love it. Yeah, I shaved my legs today. Um, and yeah, I mean, I have, there's other ways to support. You can find that on my Instagram. So. All right. So awesome. Mel State of Mind. Find I Shaved My Legs Today on Amazon. Buy it. I need to read it. So yes. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> Go ahead, clip it so we can take some pictures here. Oh, man.